Welcome. We trust you will be encouraged by this message from Mahesh and Bonnie Chavda by Chavda Ministries International. Real love, real people, real power. Hallelujah. We have for over the years, different times, we have sensed God wanting us to, the Holy Spirit was guiding us to affirm our beliefs and and they're summarized in the Apostles' Creed that we often said, but from time to time uh, we have felt like God wanted us to emphasize these truths and underline them and let us enunciate what this means for us. That these are over the years, I mean, the church has been around for nearly 2,000 years, and just as today, in many parts of the world, Christians are persecuted. They have, but they have survived and they have multiplied. And that's often, the enemy doesn't realize that the more pressure you put on the church, the more <laughs> revival comes forth. So we are grateful. We feel God is up to something major in this year and the days to follow. But we affirm, and it's good for you to have this underlined, and when you are in any gatherings, wherever, and says, well, I believe this, and I believe, and you sit there, and what do you believe, they ask. Well, this is one of the tools that will help us in saying, my, these are my beliefs. And I say, I believe in God. What else? The Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. So there is a maker. So each of these truths, there are people and cults and those who don't, absolutely don't believe and resent others believing in these eternal truths. And there are demonic forces constantly trying to battle. So we believe in a maker or we believe in a creator. But the Apostles' Creed tells us, clarifies, you have a father. God Almighty is father of, of all. And he has a son. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, and he's our Lord, Lord God Almighty. We bow to him. His name is above every name. So there are reasons. There is substance to your belief. This is, these are the part of the foundations. You don't have to say, um, uh, well, I, be, I, I believe in God. Well, these are some of the basic truths. You have some details and you can say. And by the way, you can believe with me this, and these blessings will come, are mine, and they are going to be yours in the name of Jesus. So, and it goes on then, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, I believe in the previous last few weeks, we have emphasized some of the, these truths. So, we go on, and it says, the Apostles' Creed then says, and this Jesus Suffered under Pontius Pilate, that one. There are many people who, in different generations in Israel, 
who have been called Jesus. But there was only one who, who specifically suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. That Jesus. And uh, that differentiates also other beliefs with some almost, well, they're they believe, but they're not believing what the Apostles' Creed is. Makes it clear for us that this one, this one, suffered at the point as Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. So, and I wanted to ask Bonnie, what, uh, you, your viewpoint of how this is developed. And so this morning, Mahesh and I had chosen to, for each of us to take these consecutive phrases, and I don't know how far we're going to get towards the real crux of our faith, of the history of the cosmos, of God's work of redemption, which is the crux, the cross, crucified, dead, and buried. Because we want to take just a few moments to actually uh, address the reality and the meaning and the reason for this unusual little phrase suffered under Pontius Pilate to be put by the church fathers into the creed of the church, the profession, the proclamation, the declaration, the tenets of the faith of the church. There are only two names other than the names of God that are mentioned in the creed. Mary, who is only mentioned in scripture, and the only person that is actually recorded in human history outside of the eyewitness testimony of the, God, of the scripture is Pontius Pilate. And throughout the ages, you know, there have always been the skeptics, the doubters who would take the gaps or the empty places and use them as an excuse to invalidate the scripture or the message of the gospel. But it's interesting that this figure, Pontius Pilate, who is recorded in uh, several other sources outside of Scripture, those sources include Josephus, whom you're, fam you're familiar with. Josephus was like the, news, the, the, the ultimate newspaper reporter of the time of Jesus. And he wrote a number of volumes, the Antiquity of the Jews, the Wars, so on and so forth. And in Josephus, Josephus talks about the time, the reign of Pontius Pilate and what was happening in Jerusalem. Interestingly enough, much like newspaper reporters of the modern era, Josephus had a reason for putting a spin on all the stuff that he reported. And the reason was because he wanted not to fall out of favor with the world's ruling power, which was the Roman authority. But Josephus writes about the, the, the time of Jesus, the events of the Bible, and specifically about Pontius Pilate. Also, um, one of the church fathers, Philo of Alexandria, there's a couple of chapters in his writing where he describes Pilate and the events of the day and the dynamics in terms of intersecting, interacting both with Rome and with the church. And um, uh, one of the most interesting is... Uh, the man who was a Roman politician and historian that is highly respected by modern-day scholars. His name was Tacitus. And I want to just read to you what Tacitus wrote about Pontius Pilate and specifically mentioning this phrase, 
suffered under Pontius Pilate in the annals of Roman history. And Tacitus was writing about the burning of Rome that happened in um, 64 AD. And this is what he said. But all human efforts, all the lavish gifts of the emperor and the propitiation of the gods did not banish the sinister belief that the conflagration, that is the burning of Rome, was the result of an order indicating that it had actually come from Nero in a spurious way. But of course, Nero was, was trying to deflect. Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, referring specifically to Jesus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. And a most chievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. It's really fascinating where the, the observation of the political intrigue and the way human societies embrace and indulge in those things have remained the same down through the ages. This could, you know, could be a, a newspaper article or some uh, common uh, current commentator writing in a, in a book about today's events in the world. Um, says... Uh, Accordingly, an arrest was, was first made of all who pleaded guilty. Then upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of burning the city as of hatred against mankind. And here he's talking about what happened when there was a mass arrest of Christians as a result and that very infamous event of Christians literally being doused in oil um, impaled more or less and used as garden lights for one of Nero's um, feasts. Tacitus then describes the torture of Christians. He says, mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished. He's talking about what happened in the Colosseum. Or were nailed to crosses or were doomed to flames and burnt to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight had expired. Nero offered his gardens for this spectacle and was exhibiting a show in the circus, the Colosseum, while he mingled with the people in the dress of a charioteer or stood aloft on a chariot. Hence, even for criminals who deserved extreme and exemplary punishment, there arose a feeling of compassion, for it was not as it seemed for the public good, but to glut one man's cruelty that they were being destroyed. So that's Tacitus writing about this event in Rome and about you know, giving us a little reflection into what was happening for Christians in the context of world government at that time. And he, inserts, he inserts into the middle of it the record of Christ suffering under Pontius Pilate. And um, artists down through the ages, um, principally some of the early mosaics depict him. There are a few wall murals that are still in existence, but the main depictions of this very famous encounter between Jesus and Pilate really started coming into um, 
reality during the Italianate age and the Renaissance, which was a real revival of religious art. Um, but in 1961, and Ed, I'm going to ask you if you could just put that up. In 1961, in Caesarea, it's not very clear, unfortunately. Is that the only one you have? It's clear on ours. But anyway, sorry that that's not. This is the Stone of Pilate. It was discovered in Caesarea in 1961 and it literally has on it it was in, uh, discovered in the amphitheater there it literally has on it the name Pontius Pilate prefect and so for the first time archaeologists grounded the reality outside of Tacitus report and the scriptures report grounded the reality of this decade of governorship of this man Pontius Pilate and so that, that is a, a very interesting um, thing. Together, there were, there were rings discovered and a few coins that also had the inscription of this man. But this is exciting because it's at this point in the creed. Here we are over 2,000 years later, and we're finding the reality still existent in the annals of human history that this we have believed about Jesus was indeed what the eyewitnesses saw and heard and how it speaks to us today. The encounter between Jesus and Pilate suffered under Pontius Pilate brings to bear the two big questions. The first one is human suffering. And the second one is moral authority, including governing authorities and the confrontation of God himself with both of those big questions. And so for us, this phrase, suffered under Pontius Pilate, has depths of meaning, depths of understanding, depths of solace and comfort, depths of assurance, suffered under Pontius Pilate. So, um, going on a bit, Ed, if you can um, just roll forward in some of these pictures. This is a, a, one of the Italian scenes um, of uh, Jesus before Caiaphas, before the Jewish high priest in the Sanhedrin, before he was taken to Pilate. This one is uh, more of a classical uh, Italianate from the 1500s. And this is a depiction of when the Jews brought Jesus to Pilate. And it's interesting because you see in the narrative of Scripture on three different occasions, the Jews who were preparing for Passover uh, say they say to Judas they can't take his money because it would make their thing unclean and then you know when when they bring him to Pilate they won't go into the praetorium because they're preparing for Passover and it would make them unclean and it, it really emphasizes the blindness of religious legalism in man creating his own kind of righteousness when blatantly, I mean, they were, you know, falsely accusing an innocent man in order to uh, have him killed and put down his potential uh, revolt against their hierarchy. Very interesting. So anyway, that is, um, and then this one, this one's a, a, a really um, a fascinating one. This one is called What is Truth? 
and this is by um, a Russian artist, Nikolai Nikolaevich, in 1890. And the thing that I find really interesting about the depiction here is there is the man who represents the human governing authority and supposedly all the science and philosophy and even a compilation of religious beliefs of the day supposedly standing in the light and casting a long shadow. And he's turning to the person who is truth, who is the light of the world. And he appears to be almost hidden. If you look at the difference between the two figures, you have Pilate dressed in what was with the red uh, ribbon we've learned in, in previous weeks about the dyes and stuff, a dressed, you know, very expertly, and he was probably perfumed, and he, his, his, you know, his tailor and his hairdresser had made sure his hair and his beard was all perfect, and this and that, and in, in great contrast to the man who is literally God, who appears to be in the shadow, he appears to be almost in rags, he appears to be uh, like a representative of the outcast, of the lowest of society. So th I think this is a very powerful um, depiction of the real event of what happened in this confrontation between the light of the world and the representative of human governmental light at that time. Um, this is a modern-day depiction of the flogging. Jesus was actually in, Pilate went back and forth and back and forth between the Jews who brought him, who brought Jesus, who were outside, into the praetorium, speaking with Jesus, who was imprisoned there, and then back out to the Jews and back to Jesus. And finally, he, he sends him to be flogged. And possibly, Pilate is thinking that if first of all, in his encounter with Jesus, it appears that he starts questioning. Um, and his, his actual personality is really interesting. If I have a moment, I, I might get to that in a second. But anyway, he appears to be in great conflict. So he thinks that, well, maybe if I, if I torture him, if I flog him, and bring him back and show him to the Jews, that that will shock them enough to say, okay, enough, enough, let him go. But in fact, it didn't. And so this is a depiction of the second time of uh, uh, another artist, um, a Hungarian artist. Um, no, 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 that's not correct. An Italian artist, Antonio Cesari. Ecce homo, ecce homo, behold the man. And this is... Uh, you know, depicting the scene of Pilate bringing Jesus out after he's been flogged with crown of thorns there, uh, robed with a red robe, bringing him back to show him to the Jews. And um, very famous, behold, behold the man there. And then I think the other one I have, this is a, a, a depiction of Stephen Meyer's 2015, The Killing of Jesus, of Pilate washing his hands. And one of the things, you know, saying I'm innocent of this man's blood, but one of the things that captures me about this depiction is the look on Pilate's face because you can see there that he is wondering what he has done. He is questioning this encounter that he has had with this man. He is in turmoil about his 
his being drawn or strung between his political opportunity, obligation, and potentially the threat of his political life and this unusual and powerful encounter that he has had with this man whose very words and in fact answering Pilate's questions with a question plus Pilate's wife coming to him and saying do not harm this man just send him away don't have anything to do with him I've had this dream and it's very troubling and so you see in the look on his face here that he is in turmoil inside so um just briefly about Pilate, and then I'll read uh, the portion of Suffered Under Pontius Pilate from Matthew 27. Um, Pilate is an interesting fellow, and for those of you who love history, I would encourage you to take a little time. Believe me, you can go down a massive rabbit hole because people have been absolutely intrigued because this man is found in sources outside of Scripture that all kinds of people on, in all walks of life from all different philosophies have been, in a sense, obsessed with finding out more about Pilate. And the only thing that's really written about him are some of the brief things that I've mentioned and the knowledge that he was actually the prefect in the time of Jesus in Judea for about 10 years. He did not live in Jerusalem. He lived in the Roman, you know, official governmental uh, capital, uh, Caesarea. But he would come to Jerusalem during the feasts. He was a military man. He was born to a lineage of um, Italian uh, peasants, if you will, that had once revolted against Rome. So he would like be perpetually political politically second class to those who rose to the Senate and all of that kind of stuff. They were known as the equestrians, but he was a military man, and in order to uh, advance in Rome at the time, you had to have uh, a sponsor, if you will, and uh, Saginus is a man who, who sponsored Pilate, so Pilate began to rise in his political career. Principally, he would have been a military man, and there is record that he would have fought in a number of major military confrontations, and because of his, you know, his performance there, you get the idea that he would have been a tough a uh, perhaps a surly guy. He's certainly not, you know, a soft politician that's never seen the hard stuff. And in fact, even as prefect, it's quite likely that he still slept and ate and did all of those things with the regular soldiers. And there would have been several thousand that he had brought to Jerusalem during the feast. His main thing would of, of governors at the time had to do with collecting taxes. But in this case, because of the trouble that Judea had continually um, caused for Rome, Pilate had a little bit more authority. In a sense, he had all authority. He had criminal, he had the authority to convict and condemn criminals and all of that, as well as taking up taxes. But um, 
one of the principal things and perhaps one of the reasons for a man of his, his um, temper and uh, character was appointed specifically to Judea was because of his potential for, for brutality. He's very famous for two different times of persecution of the Jews in Judea, one of which caused a revolt that literally got him recalled to Rome and actually potentially threatened his entire career. Uh, so anyway, he would have to come to Jerusalem during the feast to make sure that these Jews did not create any political upset, that there were no revolts where bad news of trouble got back to Emperor Tiberius, whom Pilate, you know, served under. And it's interesting because, and I'm going to say something political here, <laughs> One of the reasons that this, this particular part of our creed, for me, when I say it, so enters into our current reality is because many of these same kinds of dynamics are being carried out today. And I want to mention a couple of them, Pastor. Um, we saw in our legislature at the beginning of the year, in response to an unusual event that happened in Washington, D.C., where tens and tens and tens of thousands of people went to the Capitol in a protest, in a revolt. This is the kind of thing that was potentially ready to happen during the feasts in Jerusalem in the day of Jesus. And into that context, Pilate and his military Thousands of armed military would have been sent to, you know, be on edge and keep the peace. And we, we saw that event. And one of the unusual things that we noticed that we experienced is literally it was the day after, in fact, beginning that evening, the day after this event in Washington, there were put forward um, the articles of impeachment of the then sitting president. And the second article literally said that they were impeaching the sitting president for the murder of a police officer. At the time, the people who wrote that article knew that that was spurious. And since then, it has been definitively proved, though not highly confessed to, that that was actually a lie. And it was one of two principles on which our entire representative government supposedly were not only impeaching someone, but literally calling him a murderer. That's some crazy stuff. But it also shows us these were the kind of things that were happening during Jesus' day. Pilate had some political obligations that he had to uphold. So he was caught in this moment between what the people were demanding, what his political office demanded of him, and then what was happening to him personally in the moment. So our creed enters in in a very personal way in every generation to speak to us about our faith in the midst of the events of the world. The second thing, if you read the histories of Pilate, in my mind, one of the contemporary governors who came to mind is Andrew Cuomo. And 
the absurdity that this man has the audacity and arrogance to boldly, defiantly insist on his righteousness when he actually was personally responsible for an order that ended up with 15,000 elderly people dying in nursing homes. And then his administration rewrote the numbers. Why am I saying this? He reminds me of Pontius Pilate. Why am I saying this? Because we see our creed. And for me, these things continue to reinforce our belief, our choosing, our experience today. And I know during worship today, Michael, when you started with that proclamation of Jesus Almighty, for me, it was that moment right here in this space in the context of the truths of the proclamation of the creed, of the meeting, the encounter between Jesus reigning absolute, of answering in a, a, a mysterious way the promise of justice for human suffering, of his throne, Established above all authority and principality, where the one true governor actually adjudicates righteously and resolves every case because he's done it himself. And that throne, the promise of our future meeting with his enthronement in the faith of our hearts here on earth, and the reality that he is enthroned in the earth in the midst of his church. And somehow for Christians, these two moments are absolute certain future of all things being answered with the yes and amen and the celebration and the adjudication and the healing and the deliverance. And finally, victory over the grave that we have in Christ. And it sings back to us in every situation that we're in right now as human beings. And therefore, we sing as though in the future, today. And so, for me, this phrase in the creed, suffered under Pontius Pilate, has tremendous strength, courage, confirmation, assurance, righteous defiance, if you will, that Jesus has triumphed. And it reaffirms, for me personally, the yes and amen on the fact that I have made a choice to believe this Jesus and put my trust in him. So, in Matthew, in chapter 27, beginning in verse 11, it's one of four records, and the Gospels, though they're not in actual historical order, Mark was the first to write, but our, our Bible have Matthew first, but Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John, their stories literally like project out into more and more detail. It's like they grow louder and louder as they come down to the last testimony and that's John's writing of this. But I'm, I'm going to read from Matthew 27. 
And Jesus, verse 11, Jesus stood before the governor. And the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And recognized that, that this was a, a, a phrase that was, he was saying, Are you claiming to be the world ruler over Caesar, outside of Caesar? Are you claiming to be the world ruler of these people in Judea? And Jesus said, you say it. And when he was accused, the chief priest and of the and when he was accused of the chief priest and elders, he answered nothing. And then Pilate said to him, so in this moment we're seeing, you know, before they go into the praetorium. Um, he said unto Pilate, oh sorry. Then said Pilate unto him, Don't you hear how many things they're testifying against you? There's no one in this room that has not been accused of things we did and things we didn't do. But finding ourselves standing as the accused, and you might think back to that picture where Jesus appears to be in the shadow. So he has taken on himself every accusation against us. And Jesus answered back not a word. And the governor was astonished at it. That here was a man who would not defend himself. Now at that feast, the governor was wont to release a, uh, to the people a prisoner, whoever they chose. And they had a notable prisoner called Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a, a political prisoner. He was an insurrectionist and a murderer. And by every means, under Jewish and particularly Roman law, which now we find ourselves in the civil court right now of this event, Barabbas should have been executed. There is absolutely no reason that Barabbas should not have been chosen. Therefore, when they gathered together, Pilate said unto them, Who do you want me to release to you, Barabbas? Assuming that, of course, they would say Barabbas. And Pilate was thinking this was going to be his way out. Because, number one, no more trouble with the Jews was going to get back to Emperor Tiberius to get him in deeper political trouble. And he would be able to exit Jerusalem with his troops. Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ. Now remember, that word refers in this context into all the people hearing in that time. He's saying to them, this man who is your Messiah, this one you've been expecting. So when that comes to the Jewish religious leaders who absolutely felt that this Jesus of Nazareth being recognized as the Messiah of Israel was a huge threat to their hierarchy. So now they're put into to, you know, turmoil. Really a moral battle because they know that Jesus is actually innocent of doing anything except offending their religious laws, but they have an agenda. And that is to keep him from taking their power. And they know that Barabbas is an insurrectionist and a murderer and deserves to be crucified. Who are they going to choose? For he knew that it was because of jealousy that they had brought Jesus to him. And when he sat down on the judgment seat, 
His wife sent him saying, have nothing to do with that just man. For I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. Gosh. Come on. Put yourself in the moment. This is why our creed is so profound. And every time we repeat every tenet of it, enter in again to the reality of what we know and who we know. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask Barabbas and destroy Jesus. I think that is very contemporary. We are living in America in the day of the power of the woke religion. It's a secular, humanist, anti-God invention. And yet, its acolytes have the fervor of the most religious faith. And within that constituency, it is a great desire to destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said to them, which of the two do you want me to release? And they said, Barabbas. So Pilate said to them, what shall I do then with Jesus? who is called the Christ. And they all said, crucify him. And the governor said, why? What evil has he done? But they just continued. We've seen in the protests, in the riots, throughout 2020, and even beginning again, so many bizarre things, like, for instance, the supposed threat of some kind of riot in Washington as an excuse for keeping troops there, for keeping these barbed wire fences up around the Capitol, so on and so forth. We are living in like events of what's recorded in our scripture. And you do not know because of all of the lies that have been perpetuated through all of our media and many of our bureaucracies, unfortunately, you have to know who you believe because the truth is veiled intentionally on every side. <laughs> Let him be crucified. What evil has he done? They cried out all the more. Let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could prevail, he, he could not prevail but that rather a revolt or a riot was being made, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude. So when Pilate saw that he could not prevail, but that rather a riot was coming about, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it yourself. And all the people answered and said, His blood be upon us and on our children. And he released Barabbas unto them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And then the last thing that I would like to say about this phrase, suffered under Pontius Pilate, is summed up in that little paragraph of he had him scourged and then released him to be crucified. Most of our art is incapable 
of depicting what we would have seen or experienced had we been there in person. Because in the scourging, you've heard about the cat of nine tails, but the scourging was a, a throng of leather straps in which were attached and embedded nails and lead balls and shards of broken glass. And they would hit with great force and then drag such that it literally would just take the skin off of the individual that was being whipped. And that, in addition to being beat upon by the soldiers and the crown of thorns placed on his head, when Jesus was presented again, even though our picture shows him as most art does, standing with maybe a, you know, a couple of light marks and still pretty much standing up strong. The reality is that already by that time, he would have suffered beyond what we can imagine as a human being. And it would have been from that moment that he would have been taken and the cross beam of the cross would have been laid on his shoulders. Now, Jesus would have been probably for 24 hours almost without water or any kind of sustenance. He had already been imprisoned, dropped in the dungeon, which is just a big mud pit with slime and vermin and all of that in Caiaphas' house, then brought out, taken down, and gone through this entire ordeal of accusation and his trial and appearing before the judgment seat of Pilate and then taken into the praetorium and severely abused by Roman soldiers who were not, you know, gentlemanly. They were absolute brutish. And as we read from Tacitus' description of the entertainment of the day, there was a certain kind of delight that existed within the Roman dynamic of bloodshed and brutality. And so he, he would have been probably already in certain levels of shock and various other things. And they laid that crossbeam on him and compelled him, said, okay, now, which is what crucifixion uh, candidates had to do. But generally, they weren't flogged first. And so now he's being forced to carry this crossbeam. And there, of course, we know that the uh, present strength that he had. And, and I just want to say this. Jesus was a carpenter. He was not this pale, insipid, weak, you know, skinny little guy that is typically personified in art. Not, not at all. Not at all. Not whatsoever. Um, and I, sorry. I hope you don't hear. My Siri is carrying on a conversation with me right now. She just said, I'm sorry, I didn't quite hear what you had to say. Could you repeat that? <laughs> that Jesus was not the pale, insipid, skinny, weakling so often, you know, depicted in our art of him. But he would have been a very strong individual, typical 
uh, physically able and typical um, of the day, but moreover, he worked as a carpenter, which their main work was stone quarry. And in fact, probably he worked with his father Joseph in the stone quarry in Nazareth for the stones that were used in Herod's 40-year temple complex building. So there's so many astounding things about who our Jesus really was or is as a man, God incarnate as a man. And um, it, is, it is in that context that the creed places Jesus, the human being, in confrontation with the human world. And it's uniquely personified in this encounter or confrontation, if you will, between light and darkness, between truth and life, lie, between life and death, where Jesus entered in in a way that only God could have to become the exchange for each one of us. And at the same time, the absolute answer to the two big questions, the question of human suffering and the question of moral authority. That's very fascinating and enlightening. And this is what the incarnation went through. And it was all of these things were on our behalf. And uh, next, as you go on, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, and the creed then goes on. And he, he was crucified dead and buried. And all of these, these, of course, these are truths, but they are logical reasons that people, church authorities of the previous 2,000 years, well, the first 200 that were formulating some of these creeds, these were essential. Some, like some cults would say, no, no, he was not crucified. And there was another major, it would come from the Islamic background, where so he did not die. He was taken away, rescued, whatever. Uh, but the Apostles' Creed, and of course we absolutely believe that he suffered and was crucified. And that pain and agony, you, we can't imagine how horrific it was. And so and then he hung on the cross and he died and was buried. And that also is very important that then on the third day it awesome triumph that that victory affects you and I and therefore you are an inheritor of eternal life that you have nothing to fear. Your eternal destiny has been changed because of the incarnation and because he was willing to take all this punishment. So every curse, every sin, every shadow that you have in your life or in, the, in your family life, he took it all because he's the son of God. And Isaiah summarizes some of that. 
crucified, dead, and buried. And so we're going to examine that critical area. It's amazing. So miraculous. And other scriptures uh, that tell us and will equip you also to help bring the word and bring the healing glory in many, many situations that and I will apply it to yourself and then to others. Many parents would say, now we have been in that place where in the middle of the night we are awake praying because our child is going through horrible attacks. And the main strength we have as we pray is Jesus took that on Calvary. And so by his stripes, you were and are being healed. And so, but we, have, we are personalizing that and then claim it for all people who are going through suffering and give hope. There is hope in the resurrection. So, and this, we are entering, it wasn't planned, but it really is great that in a few weeks we are, we are going to enter in in three weeks, three and a half weeks or so, that the whole thing of the uh, resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and what it means for us and what it means to you personally and what it means to us corporately. Uh, crucified, dead, and buried. On the third day, he rose again. So these are, and these are powerful truths for us that we need to not, in any, for any reason, dilute these things. Because there are all kinds of philosophies waiting to pounce. But I want to tell you that church has the answer. And the answer is in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Praise God. So we want to just take this personally. It's wonderful to know that our Savior that there is a justified in doing that and that he truly de did it. He oh, fulfilled all the legal requirements. The price has been paid. You have been purchased with a price, it says. So we thank the Lord for these eternal awesome truths. And thank the past saints who really paid a price for us to have these truths today. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you that these truths that are enunciated in the Apostles' Creed, may they strengthen us and make us strong in our faith. We thank you for those who have passed these truths on to us. We are grateful. We say, our Lord suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. And on the third day, he was resurrected. Thank you, Father. We apply it. And we pray for healing for every person, every child, every family.
that needs that miraculous, awesome touch. We proclaim this Jesus suffered, hung on the cross, was buried on the third day. He was raised from the dead, alive forevermore, the King of glory. We bow before him. We hope you enjoyed this message. To order more great resources by Mahesh and Bonnie Chavda, visit us at chavdaministries.org. For a full catalog of our products, you can call us at 1-800-730-6264. God bless you.